بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله This is lesson 86 86 Okay So this is lesson 86 And Alhamdulillah Last week we left off talking about The marriage of the Prophet ﷺ to Umm Salama in the month of Shawwal in the fourth year after the Hijrah. So we're coming near the end of the fourth year and getting close to the fifth year. Now, according to Ibn Ishaq in his seerah, in the month of Jumad al-Ula, in the fourth year, there was an incident called the Ghazwa of that riqa'ah the ghazwa of that riqa'ah otherwise known as the battle of the rags the battle of the rags why is it called the battle of the rags some of the ulama say that it was called the battle of the rags because the rayat or the battle flags were tattered as if they were rags other scholars say that it was called that riqa' or the battle of rags because riqa' is here describing the red, black, and white pattern colors of some of the mountains in the area where the battle took place. You know, mountains have different shades of color depending on the growth and the type of rock formations and whatnot. So, according to that view, uh, it the mountainside in the area where the battle took place looked like rags because it looked like patches of rags in different colors. So red, black, and white. But the most likely reason why it is called that riqar is because the Sahaba themselves described wrapping rags around their feet because of developing blisters and sores from walking that vast distance over rocky terrain. And we look at these three views about why it was called that riqar This is the soundest view because we have the hadith narration which mentions, this is coming from Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, he says that they would take turns, uh, one camel for six people. So if you're traveling hundreds of kilometers over rocky terrain and you have one camel for every six people and they're taking turns, uh, there's a high chance you're going to develop blisters and sores across your feet. And that's what happened. And they used rags to wrap these wounds while they continued to walk this vast distance to this area. Now that's the name. Let's go back to the dating issue because this is where there's a bit of contradiction. We have in the Sira works, the classical Sira works, where it says that the battle of that riqa'ah took place in the month of Jumad al-Ula in the fourth year of the Hijrah. Another narration says that it took place in the month of Muharram in the fifth year after the Hijrah, so some months later. But 
in Sahih al-Bukhari, we find a narration from Abu Musa al-Ash'ari and Abu Huraira radiallahu anhuma, which says that the two of them both participated in this battle. That is a clue about the timing of the battle. Because when you look at the timing where they would be together, it actually puts the battle in the seventh year after Hijrah and not the fourth or the fifth. And that is in Sahih Bukhari. So we have a bit of a contradiction between what is found in the classical Sira works of Ibn Ishaq and Waqidi and what we find in Sahih Bukhari. Sahih Bukhari, that narration doesn't say it was the seventh year. But the narration does mention Abu Musa al-Ash'ari and Abu Huraira being together in that battle. And when you look at the chronology of where they were and when, that would put the battle in the seventh year after the Hijrah. So according to many of the researchers in the Sirah, they say that the Mu'tamad, the relied upon position, therefore, is that Riqa' took place in the seventh year after the Hijrah and not at the end of the fourth or the beginning of the fifth year. There's a two-year difference. There's a slight discrepancy here. And that begs the question. If that is the relied upon view, why are we talking about it now? Why aren't we talking about it in the seventh year? We're at the end of the fourth, going into the fifth. Uh, And the answer is we're presenting the chronology as it is found in the classical sources, even though we have the narration in Bukhari, which would establish it being in the seventh year. But to keep the general order that we find in the Sira collections, we're talking about it now. Uh, Another reason why it's not a a significant issue is that it wasn't a major battle that had so many people that had major events taking place. It is one battle, one Ghazwa out of many Ghazawat, minor skirmishes and expeditions that took place in this period. So let's talk a bit about it. The Ghazwa of that al took place because of an incident where some groups from the tribe of Banu Muharib of Anmar and Banu Tha'laba ibn Ghatfan had gathered together their forces in order to wage a war against the Muslim community. That's the seerah. You keep seeing it. This tribe and that tribe, allies with this one and that one, and they plot and want to do something because after Uhud, they had a sense that the Muslims were in in a weaker state and they want to take advantage of that. And so we find this happening where these two tribes come together in order to wage war against the Muslim community in Medina. As it always happens, word gets back to the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims because there are scouts, their word travels by mouth, eventually it reaches them. And so the Prophet ﷺ went out with between 400 to 700 of the Sahaba. And these numbers are significant. There's a big difference between four and seven. It's almost double according to one narration. Where it's unclear. So we find 400 or 700 going out and the narration says that the Prophet ﷺ left either Abu Dharr al-Ghifari in charge of Medina or Uthman ibn Affan in charge of Medina while they were away. And the seerah tells us that the Prophet ﷺ led this force of Muslims to a valley called Shukra, uh, not far from 
where these people are. And he camped there for a day and sent out scouts to go and look for the whereabouts and what's going on with these two tribes who were planning to attack the Muslims. And these scouts came back right at nightfall to tell the Prophet ﷺ that they did not spot anyone. There was no one to be found. And so the Prophet ﷺ continued on with the troops until they reached this place called Nakhal in the area, the tribal area of Ghatafan. So now they've gone into the tribal area itself. When they got closer to where these tribes were normally located, they found no one there. So what did they do? They decided to set up camp. And the narrations mentioned that when they get to the tribal areas of Ghatafad, these fighters were nowhere to be found. It doesn't mean that no one was there. There were some people, some shepherds and some women and some people out there. But the fighting age males, the people who would normally be present to prepare such an attack were nowhere to be found. So there's no fighting here. It's a ghazwa because the Prophet ﷺ was there, but no fighting took place. Now as they're camping out in this area, this is enemy territory. So as they're camping out, the Muslims b began to grow worried that they're in a vulnerable position. They're camping out in literal enemy territory, belonging to a tribe who was previously planning on gathering troops to invade the Muslims. And so some of the Muslims were concerned about this. And as a result, the Prophet ﷺ led the Muslims in Salatul Khawf. This is the instance where it's not something done by others, it's done by himself leading the Muslims in Salatul Khawf, where, as we described, I think, I don't know if it was in the Sira class, it might have been in Ask the Imam. Yeah, we talked about Salatul Khawf, the prayer of fear, which is allowed for these kinds of situations, where you have, you lead the prayer one rak'ah, and then you break it off and guard the others who then pray one rak'ah, and you switch back and forth like this. So that was done uh, that night as they were camping out, but nothing happened. There was no fighting. However, there was an incident that happened shortly after this. In connection with this expedition, we have a very famous story recorded in the Sirah works about the Prophet ﷺ and one of the idol worshippers in the area. And this hadith comes from Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhu. He tells us that as they were making their way back from this expedition of that al-Riqa'ah, they came upon a large area filled with many trees. And these trees were large enough that they provided shade for the Muslims seeking some coolness to get out of the heat. So as they get to these shade trees, the Prophet ﷺ decides to go under one of them and take a nap. So he's under one of these trees and he's resting. And as he's resting, he, he hangs his sword on one of the branches of the tree. And he's taking a nap. As he's napping, a mushrik man from the area comes up to him. He sees the sword. He quietly unsheaths the sword and then puts it in front of the Prophet And this person has a name and he's recorded his name is Ghawra ibn al-Harith. 
He draws the sword and he, the Prophet ﷺ wakes up and Ghawra ibn al-Harith says, Do you fear me? Do you fear me? And to this the Prophet ﷺ says, No. And Ghawra says to him, Who will protect you from me now? Who's going to protect you? And the Prophet ﷺ gave the most obvious answer. The only correct answer to that question, which is Allah. So Jabir tells the story and he says, the Messenger of Allah then called us and we came forward and we found the Bedouin sitting with him. So picture the story, he comes up, this man Ghawra pulls out the sword from the sheath, has this interaction when the Prophet ﷺ calls for the Sahaba, they come and see the Bedouin sitting next to him. They're just sitting. And he tells the story to Jabir and the others about what happened. And the Bedouin is just sitting there calmly and free, no harm. The Prophet ﷺ forgave Ghawra for this. And the Bedouin, Ghawra, was very impressed from the level of yaqeen and certainty in calmness under this pressure, another narration gives us more detail. In this other narration, it says that the reply of the Prophet ﷺ put fear into the heart of Ghawra, and he was so struck by fear upon hearing his words that he dropped the sword. He dropped the sword of the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ then took up the sword himself pointed at him and asked him the exact same question, who will protect you from me now? But his answer is different. Ghawra's answer was, be the best of those who take prisoners. You're going to take me as a prisoner? Then be the best of those who take prisoners. And to this the Prophet ﷺ says, do you bear witness to la ilaha illallah? Do you bear witness that there's no God but Allah and that I am Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah? Ghawra did not take shahada. He didn't say yes. Instead, he said, I promise you that I will not fight you or join those who fight you ever. And the Prophet agreed and sent him on his way. And according to some of the ulama, Allah Ta'ala revealed a verse in the Qur'an about this very incident. In some of the narrations concerning Asbab al-Nuzul, one of them mentions that uh, Allah Ta'ala revealed a verse about this incident. And that verse is where he says, addressing the believers, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أُذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذْ هَمَّ قَوْمٌ أَنْ يَبْصُطُوا إِلَيْكُمْ أَيْدِيَهُمْ فَكَفَّ أَيْدِيَهُمْ عَنْكُمْ O you who believe, remember Allah's favor upon you when a people sought to harm you, but he held their hands back from you. Be mindful of Allah, and in Allah let the believers put their trust. So according to some positions, uh, some narrations, this verse was revealed in connection to that incident between the Prophet ﷺ and Ghawra ibn al-Harith. He didn't become Muslim, he let him go, but he was still very moved by the response of the Prophet ﷺ. So this is that al-Riqar in a nutshell. It, there wasn't much going on, nothing much happened. 
uh, in terms of battle, but you have these other incidents that are recorded in the seerah. So, so far we've been talking about these smaller skirmishes and battles, uh, and also the larger battles. Uh, that, and all of these things we've discussed from the beginning of the Medinan period until now, all of these saraya, all of the ghazawat, the battles and expeditions, large and small, all of them up until now have taken place in the Arabian Peninsula proper. But we come now to the fifth year of the Hijrah. And in the fifth year of the Hijrah, we have the very first ghazwa that is not in the Arabian Peninsula. We have a ghazwa that took place in Sham. And Sham, I know the Syrians, they say Sham refers to Damascus, correct? But in Sham, classically, is uh, greater Syria, Palestine. So when you hear the word Sham in the Hadith, it doesn't just mean Syria as we know of it today. It refers to Syria, it refers to Jordan, it refers to Palestine, and it refers to probably most of Lebanon as well. So that whole region is what we call Greater Sham and Palestine. So in the fifth year of the Hijrah, we have the first Ghazwa outside of the Arabian Peninsula in the region of Sham. Now, who, who was the ruling power in Sham at that time? The Rom, the Byzantines. The Rom were in power. Now, what are the Rom ethnically? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. Uh, Rome are generally Europeans. Uh, but when you look at Rome more broadly, yes, from the, in, in terms of ethnic stock, they would be European slash Caucasian. But Rome in that time, uh, think of Anatolia. Think of the Anatolian, the Rumi Turks. Not the, the Turkic uh, ethnic side of the Turks, but the Anatolian, Rumi, more European stock from within the Turks. So that's Rome, the Byzantine Empire. In the Byzantine Empire, one of the interesting things about history is that you find that the most powerful tribes of the Arabs were in the interior. They're in the Hijaz, they're in Mecca, they're in Medina, they're in Ta'if, there's uh, these all these other tribes and clans. But it seems like the further you go outside of that heartland of Arabia, uh, you find tribes among the Arabs that had less prestige, that many, many of whom were uh, exiled further north, right? And you had tribes of, of, of Arabs in the region of Sham, right? So depending on where you go in Sham, you have people who are more of an Arab stock, those who have more of a Turkish stock, and then you have those in between. The majority of Ahl-Sham, they have a bit of everyone from civilizations all over. So these were Arab tribes, but they're in Sham. And this Ghazwa that took place in the fifth year after Hijrah is known as the Ghazwa of Dumat al-Jandal. Duma al-Jandal. And... What was the cause of this ghazwa? The cause of the ghazwa was because of what we call qutaat tariq, or highway robbers, or brigands. In the Sira narrations, we find that 
news reached the Prophet about several tribes in that region who had gathered together and began to rob different caravans of merchants going north. And they're traveling here and there, raiding these caravans in villages, taking things by force. And they are making their way south, intending to go as far as Medina. So this is also a threat for the community. They're not just policing things happening up north that don't involve them. The intelligence has come back indicating that they're making their way south and will eventually reach Medina and try the same thing they were doing up north. And so the Prophet ﷺ gathered some of the companions, uh, about a thousand of them, to go up north and deal with these highway robbers and stop them in their tracks. The narrations say that the Prophet ﷺ left either Siba' ibn Urfuta al-Ghifari in charge of Medina or someone else. And he marched with 1,000 of the Sahaba leaving on the 25th of Ar-Rabi' al-Awwal in the fifth year after the Hijrah. So we're now in the fifth year. When they grew near to the area where these highway robbers were, they found that they had gone west. And they found traces of their presence and they found livestock, they found some young shepherds tending to the livestock that they left behind. So they understand that these people beat a very hasty retreat before the Muslims could arrive. They got wind of their impending arrival, probably saw them at a distance through trackers or people keeping watch, and they got out of there. So the Muslims get there, and they capture some of the livestock and they find these shepherds. And it's called Duma al Jandal because you have this area called Duma. And Duma's in Syria today, isn't it? Right? There's ulama from Hanabila, there's Hanbari Syrians. They, they're from Duma and they have the name of Dumi at the end of their name. Um, so they're west. By the time the people of Duma hear what's going on, they too take off. And when the Prophet ﷺ reaches Duma, there's no fighters there. So we have the same thing happening here as happened at the Battle of Datul-Riqar. These people are intending harm, but when they hear of this massive force of Muslims, they don't want any of that. So they beat a hasty retreat. So the hadith, the hadith narrations in the seerah tell us that when there was no fight and everyone, they had ran, the Prophet ﷺ decided to camp there for a few days while sending out expeditions in every single direction from Duma to find the whereabouts of these highway robbers. As they were going out, they only captured a single person. Everyone got away except for one. This person was captured and brought to the Prophet ﷺ, and he was asking him about the whereabouts of these others. And the man said to him, they fled when they heard that you had captured their livestock. At this stage, the Prophet ﷺ knows there is no longer any threat. They have fled. This deterrent worked. And so he presented Islam to this lone prisoner. He offered him to become a Muslim. And this man heard the message and became Muslim on the spot. And that's happened many times. And the Prophet ﷺ returns to Medina on the 20th of Rabi'ul uh, Thani, 
and no one was harmed. So we have a month and five days, give or take, or about a month, from going to Medina, to Duma, camping there, and making their way back. So that is the story of the Ghazwa of Duma to Jandal. Nothing happened. But other things are happening. There are tribal alliances being built or treaties being agreed upon between the Prophet ﷺ and some of these distant Arab tribes in that region, both in that region and in the region of the Nejd. And we have a story of one of them because this happened right after the Ghazwa of Dumat Jandal, a treaty that was agreed upon between the Prophet ﷺ and one of these tribal leaders by the name of Ruyayna ibn Husn al-Fizari. And we've talked about him a few years ago, I think, in one of the khutbas because his story is quite interesting. Ruyayna bin Husn al-Fizari was what we would call, he's a tribal chief, but he's what you would call a country bumpkin. You know, the country bumpkin is like a redneck. Someone who is uncouth, uneducated, rough around the edges, unintelligent, but he is the leader of his people. He's very rude. He doesn't have adab. He doesn't know anything about adab. And so Ruyayna bin Hassan comes to Medina to negotiate these terms. And this is shortly before the ayat of Quran were revealed about hijab. I want to make that clear. Those verses will be discussed in a couple of weeks. So this is before the ayat of hijab are revealed. Ruyayna bin Hassan arrives to Medina and he didn't come to take shahada. He just came to negotiate the treaty. And it's narrated that when he arrived in Medina, the first thing he did was barge in into the Prophet's house, No knocking, no istidhan, no seeking permission to enter. He just walks right in the house with his wife. And which wife was he with? Does anyone know? Well, I'll give you a clue. And you'll figure it out from this hadith. He goes inside. He sees the wife of the Prophet The Prophet says to him, Ya Uyayna, you must seek permission before you enter. And Uyayna says to him, I have never once in my life asked permission from a mudari, someone from the, the greater tribe of mudar, from the Arabs. I've never asked permission of a, a single mudari ever in my life. Imagine you've never asked someone's permission to go into their home. You just barge into everyone's homes and that's the norm for you. That was Uyayna bin Hassan. I've never asked permission. He sees the wife of the Prophet and he asks him, Who is this Humayra? Now you have the answer. Who is this Humayra? This reddish one. Why does he call her that? He calls that he calls her that because the narration is mentioned that she had a a, a reddish, uh, ruddy complexion or hue. Yeah, she is Arab. Her father is Abu Bakr Siddiq radiAllahu anhu. And this uh, humra that you find as a description for complex human complexions, it's also found in the Shama'il. Uh, one of the narrations mentions Mushrab and Bihumra. It's a kind of uh, ruddish, reddish complexion to the skin. 
So he asked her, who is this Humayra? Him, who is this Humayra? And the Prophet wasallam says, this is Aisha. Now, here Uyayna says to the Prophet wasallam, why don't I give you someone even more beautiful than her? I will divorce one of my wives and you can marry her. Because that was a jahili custom. Tribal leaders would often have several wives and one of their gestures would be to divorce one of their wives and give it to the other tribal chief. Trade-offs. And to this, the Prophet ﷺ says, this has been made haram, forbidden by Allah. And this whole time, they're just having this brief little conversation. When Uyayna leaves, Aisha radiallahu anha asked the Prophet وسلم, who was that man? And he says, He is the foolish person obeyed by his people. And the word ahmaq means fool, means an idiot. So you could translate it different ways. This is the, the idiot obeyed by his people. The foolish man obeyed by his people. And Aisha picked up on the difference between how he was treating Uyayna in the house and how he's speaking about him after he leaves. So Sayyidah Aisha says, why did you speak gently to him when he was here, but you speak harshly about him after he left? And the Prophet said, when have you ever known me to be obscene? The worst of mankind are those to whom people are nice only in order to save themselves from their evil. These are the worst people. You're only nice to them because if you're not, they're going to attack you, they're going to malign you, they're going to backbite you, they're going to do things. So you're only nice to them to avoid their evil. So it's a, it's a way of defending yourself from their possible harms. So the Prophet ﷺ, the scholars say, spoke gently to Uyayna in order to win over his heart to Islam. And what he said about Uyayna after he left was a true statement. And how he treated him was what they call mudarat, you know, kind company, gentle company, to win people over. You're not saying anything false. You're not pretending to believe something about them or have an attitude towards them that's not true. You're just being decent. And in this case, being decent also to avoid Uyayna falling into further evil by speaking badly about him. So this is what the scholars call mudarat. There's two things you have. You have mudarat, which is being sociable, being kind when kindness is the best option without bending the truth or altering realities. And then you have uh, mudahana, which is basically being a sycophant. You, you go along to get along and you pretend the person's a certain way when they're not. You're basically bending the truth because you want something from them. That's not what this is. So when the Prophet ﷺ says what he says, this is al-ahmaq al-muta'ah, this is the obeyed idiot. He's speaking a true word, but he still had hilm, forbearance with him in his company. 
because he wanted the hilm, the forbearance, to disarm him and soften his heart towards Islam. So what actually happened with Uyayna? He didn't become Muslim here, but he did become Muslim later on. So Uyayna bin Hassan became Muslim and was among the tulaqa, among the latter day people who embraced Islam towards the end. And the tulaqa, they're given suhba, they're considered sahaba, but they're not in any way comparable to as-sabiqoon al-awwaloon min al-muhajireen wal-ansar. Allah affirms that in the Qur'an. They're not equal, right? Those who, those who sacrificed their lives and their wealth and migrated, they're not equal to those who only became Muslim after the Fath, after the, the opening of Mecca. So it's from the Tulaqa. After the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, he actually left Islam. He became a murtad. So he, he was that kind of person. Yeah, he left Islam and he even fought against some of the Muslims. But during the reign of Umar, he became Muslim once again and he, was, he rejoined the community. And yeah, his affair is with Allah. His affair is with Allah. That's what it was. So this happened in the fifth year of the Hijrah. Another thing that happened in this time period was a very, is a very significant event. Uh, it's another marriage. Uh, and what makes it significant is the background to the marriage, how the marriage was done, and the verses of the Qur'an that were revealed in connection to the marriage and its lessons for the Ummah. This is also an incident that has been spoken about extensively by different Orientalists and people who seek to malign the Prophet So this is the marriage of the Prophet to Zainab bint Jahsh This occurred in this time period, in the fifth year after Hijrah. So Zainab bin Jahsh radiallahu anha, she is the brother of Abdullah bin Jahsh. And she's one of the earliest women to accept Islam and make Hijrah. In the fifth year of the Hijrah, the Prophet married her. In the fourth year of the Hijrah, she got married to Zayd ibn al-Haritha. Now, who can remind us who Zayd is? He was the adopted son. And you remember his story? He ended up being sold into slavery. And then his freedom was purchased. And he, began, he became the adopted son of the Prophet ﷺ. When his family finally found his whereabouts, they came all the way to Mecca. But Zayd chose to remain with the Prophet ﷺ. He was about 15 at the time. So now in Mecca, sorry, in Medina, he gets married to Zainab bin Jahsh. And there's a story about that too. Now, a year prior to this, the Prophet ﷺ in the fourth year had married her Zainab to Zayd ibn Haritha. But before the marriage, she wasn't really in favor of it. She didn't really want to get married to him. And there's some narrations that show her initial refusal because she didn't feel that he had a noble lineage unlike her. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
right? There is a notion of kafa'a, and people like to marry. I mean, women, you know, like they tend to want to marry someone of a slightly higher status, not someone from a lower status. But the Prophet wasallam instructed her to get married to Zayd. So when she was told to marry him, she initially said, I don't accept him. I'm nobler than him in lineage. But the Prophet told her, I have accepted him for you. This is a hadith in Bayhaqi and Hakim. I have accepted him for you. So it has the prophetic seal of approval. And so it's going to happen. A verse of Quran was revealed in connection with that. In that verse, Allah Ta'ala says, وَمَا كَانَ لِمُؤْمِنٍ وَلَا مُؤْمِنًا إِذَا قَضَى اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَمْرًا أَنْ يَكُونَ لَهُمُ الْخِيَرَةُ مِنْ أَمْرِهِمْ وَمَنْ يَعْصِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ فَقَدَ ضَلَّ ضَلَالًا مُبِينًا And this verse applies to her and to everyone else for all eternity. It is not fitting for a believing man or a believing woman once Allah and His Messenger have decreed a matter that they have any say-so or choice over the matter. And whosoever disobeys Allah and His Messenger has uh, strayed in a very clear and evident straying. So this verse is revealed in connection to Zainab bin Jahsh. So she remained, she of course agreed to the marriage, and she got married to Zayd. But within a year, some problems start to surface. Within a year, Zayd radiallahu anhu went to the Prophet and complained about Zainab. He said, Ya Nabi Allah, O Prophet of Allah, her manner I find intolerable. I find her manner intolerable and I'm going, I want to divorce her. What are the problems between the two? It's just a lack of chemistry. It's a clash of personalities. It just wasn't working out. And you have to put that in context with the verse. Allah revealed the verse in connection with her getting married to him. And Allah doesn't make mistakes. But you see something bigger is playing out in all of this. She getting married to Zayd is part of a larger story as revelation comes down and as the Sharia begins to become more detailed about family matters. You have to put it in that bigger context. So a year later, they're having problems. Zayd wants to divorce her. And he goes to the Prophet ﷺ and speaks about this. And the Prophet ﷺ gives him some advice. In that advice he says, Amsik Keep your wife and have taqwa of Allah. That's the literal phrase he uses. Amsik Keep your wife and have taqwa of Allah. But Zayd, so Zayd went back, but the personality clash remained and it became unbearable for him. Now you have to understand, Allah Ta'ala is revealing things to the Messenger of Allah He knows that they're going to get divorced. He knows. And he also knows that she is eventually going to become his wife. But the Prophet is instructing Zayd on the outer comportment of Sharia, how you handle this in the outward sense. The Prophet receives knowledge from Allah concerning the Zahir and the Batin. 
the outward realities and the inward realities. The outward realities concern matters of sharia, what you do. The matters of the unseen remain unseen. The batin, those things unfold until something changes in the outward. But he knows how things are going to play out. But this is the outward instruction according to the comportment of the sharia. So when this happened, Zayd, he did divorce her. He couldn't take it, so he did pronounce divorce on her. Zainab bin Jahsh radiallahu anha was going through her idda, and once the idda was finished, because Islamically you can't propose to a woman during her idda, it has to be after. Once her idda was finished, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa called Zayd and told him, go to Zainab and mention her to me. Or mention me to her rather. Mention me to her. And this is, of course, uh, this is a, a passive way of saying mention me and in interest in getting married to her. That's what it means. So this became a test for Zayd because Zayd just divorced her. And of course, they had personality conflicts, but he sees that she's going to marry the best of creation. Of course she has value. Of course she has value. But he just divorced her. He just divorced this one of immense value. And now this person of immense value is going to become the wife of the Prophet But But Zayd has powerful iman and certainty. So he's not shaken by this. Instead he goes to Zainab, his now ex-wife. And in the narration, it says that when he went to his ex-wife Zainab, he was so moved by, you could describe it as awe that this is transpiring, that he went to her and then turned away like this out of a kind of shyness and awe for her. And he mentions to her uh, that the Prophet ﷺ has expressed interest. He says, when I saw her, my chest was filled, was, was filled with esteem for her such that I could not bear to look at her since the Messenger of Allah وسلم, had mentioned her. This is the pinnacle of adab. She's not yet married to the Prophet وسلم, but he knows that's what's going to happen. That is going to happen. So although they're not yet married, she's going to become the wife. So she must be treated as one of the Ummahatul Mu'mineen even beforehand. So he treats her with that awe and respect and turning away like this. As he would towards any of the other wives of the Prophet So he says, the Messenger of Allah has sent me to mention him to you. She was shocked. And she said, I will do nothing until I seek the guidance of my Lord. And then she got up and went straight to her mihrab. What's a mihrab? Right, we think of this as the mihrab, the prayer niche, but in that time the mihrab is the personal prayer space in your home, right? It's good to have one. So she went to her mihrab and went straight there into salat and in dua. And of course Allah Ta'ala had married the Prophet ﷺ to Zainab, and we see a series of verses describing this event and other details. So in Surah Hazab, Right after the verse that was revealed 
concerning her getting married to him, the one that we mentioned earlier, after that in Surah Ahzab, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the following verse. وَإِذْ تَقُولُ لِلَّذِي أَنْعَمُ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَأَنْعَمْتَ عَلَيْهِ أَمْسِكْ عَلَيْكَ زَوْجَكَ وَاتَّقِ اللَّهِ وَتُخْفِي فِي نَفْسِكَ مَا اللَّهُ مُبْدِيهِ وَتَخْشَى النَّاسَ وَاللَّهُ أَحَقُّ أَنْ تَخْشَاهِ فَلَمَّا قَضَى زَيْدٌ مِنْهَا وَطَرًا زَوَّجْنَاكَهَا لِكَيْ لَا يَكُونَ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ حَرَجٌ فِي أَزْوَاجِ أَدْعِيَائِهِمْ إِذَا قَضَوْا مِنْهُنَّ وَطَرًا وَكَانَ أَمْرُ اللَّهِ مَفْعُولًا Allah Ta'ala says, and remember, addressing the Prophet and remember, when you said to the one for whom Allah has done a favor, and you too have done a favor, Keep your wife in fear Allah. The exact phrase. Keep your wife and have taqwa of Allah. While concealing within yourself what Allah was going to reveal. And so you were considering the people, whereas Allah was more worthy of your consideration. So when Zayd lost interest in keeping his wife, we gave her to you in marriage so that there would be no blame on the believers for marrying the ex-wives of their adopted sons after their divorce. And Allah's command is totally binding. We have to unpack this verse to get the proper perspective and understanding about what took place. First, the question. Is this verse a rebuke of the Prophet It's not. The ulama do say it is an itab. And itab is a word that there's no easy English translation for. Sometimes people translate itab as rebuke. But rebuke is not itab and itab is not rebuke. Itab is a loving instruction to a higher standard for someone who is already on a high standard. Right? So if you lovingly critiqued someone, address guiding them to something superior, that would be called an itab. That's not a condemnation. That's not a criticism. It's definitely not a rebuke. Rebuke is very negative. Right? It's not that. Itab is this loving inculcation of a higher level of understanding. And I want to share with you the words uh, commenting on this verse and this is found in multiple tafasir uh, and this is from the words of Imam Zayn al-Abidin Ali bin Hussein radiallahu anhu and he says about this verse kana qad awhallahu ilayhi anna zaydan sayutalliquha it was revealed by Allah to him that Zayd is going to divorce her wa annahu yatazawwajuha bitazwiji Allah iyaha and it was revealed to him that Allah is going to marry him to her. فَلَمَّا شَكَ زَيْدٌ خُلُقَهَا وَأَنَّهَا لَا تُطِيعُهُ وَأَعْلَمَهُ بِأَنَّهُ يُرِيدُ طَلَاقَهَا قَالَ لَهُ أَمْسِكْ عَلَيْكَ زَوْجَكَ وَاتَّقِ And when he uh, complained about her character and that she wasn't listening to him 
and he told the Prophet ﷺ that he wishes to divorce her, he said to Zayd, keep your wife and have taqwa of Allah. He says, he said this to him, Amsik giving him a higher standard of adab and giving him sincere counsel, telling him this. All the while he knew that ultimately he is going to divorce her. This is what he concealed. Allah mentions that he concealed in himself what Allah is going to reveal. What is he concealing? He is concealing his knowledge that ultimately, despite his instruction, Zayd is inevitably going to divorce Zaynab bin Jahsh. He says, وَهُوَ يَعْلَمُ أَنَّهُ سَيُطَلِّقُهَا وَهَذَا هُوَ الَّذِي أَخْفَى فِي نَفْسِهِ وَلَمْ يُرِدْ أَنْ يَأْمُرَهُ بِالطَّلَاقِ He did not intend to command Zayd to divorce him. لِمَا عَلِمَ مِنْهُ أَنَّهُ سَيُطَلِّقُهَا He didn't command him to divorce her because he knew he was already going to divorce her. Why command it? Why say, yeah, go divorce her when he already knows that's going to happen? Instead, he just told him, keep her, have taqwa of Allah, but this is going to transpire, you're going to do it anyway. This is, not, uh, this is not a divine command that he has to stick with her no matter what. He's just giving him a wasiyah, some counsel. So he says, uh, Imam Zayn al-Abidin, لِمَا عَلِمَ مِنْهُ أَنَّهُ سَيُطَلِّقُهَا وَخَشِيَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ تَعَالَى عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَنْ يَلْحَقَهُ قَوْلٌ مِنَ النَّاسِ so he says here that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was worried that people would say something regarding him because Zayd was the adopted son of the Prophet وسلم, and here he is telling him to go and divorce his wife and then he marries her. He says, وَقَدْ أَمَرَهُ بِطَلَاقِهَا This is, he, he didn't want people to say that. He was feared, fearful that people would say that kind of thing and cast aspersions on his character. We'll explain why. فَعَاتَبَهُ اللَّهُ عَلَى هَذَا الْقَدْرِ فِي شَيْءٍ قَدْ أَبَاحَهُ اللَّهُ بِأَنْ قَالَ أَمْسِكْ مَا عِلْمِهِ أَنَّهُ يُطَلِّقْ فَأَعْلَمَهُ أَنَّ اللَّهَ أَحَقُّ بِالْخَشْيَةِ أي في كل حال. So he says here, uh, so Allah Ta'ala gave him this gentle itab on, on this level for something that was permitted by Allah Ta'ala uh, by him saying amsik, right? This is the light itab. When he said amsik, keep her, hold fast or keep her, where it's something permitted for him to divorce her. That's where the itab comes from. And while knowing that he's going to divorce her. So Allah informed him that Allah has more right to be considered in this matter and in all matters. Uh, this is a rough translation. So we're trying to piece together the scenario, what's going on. Now, the reason why this is happening is because Zayd ibn al-Haritha is the adopted son of the Prophet And in Jahili custom, the adopted son is considered just like a biological son in terms of inheritance, in terms of naming. 
So he used to be Zayd ibn Muhammad. He's Zayd ibn al-Harith now. Uh, it's also in the Jahili custom, the, the same thing with regards to marriage. If it's your adopted son, he's still like your own son. So if he gets married, you can't marry his wife if he divorces the wife. His ex-wife is forbidden for you, right? Yeah, in Islam, if your son gets married to someone and divorces her, you can't marry that, that woman, right? But is Zayd his actual son? He's not. But in Jahili custom, he was seen as if he was his son. So Allah Ta'ala is revealing this because the Sharia is wiping away this Jahili understanding and is wiped away by the Prophet Sallallahu modeling what is permissible and not leaving it for someone else to be the first one to do it, right? So after citing this narration from Imam Zayn al-Abidin, Imam Abu Hayyan mentions in his tafsir, وَهَذَا مَذْهَبُ أَهْلِ التَّحْقِيقِ مِنَ الْمُفَسِّرِينَ This is the position of the Ahlul Tahqiq, the verifying masterful scholars among the scholars of tafsir. So the Prophet ﷺ came to know through wahi that things would transpire in this way where Zayd would divorce her, after which he would propose to Zainab and then get married to her. So he stopped Zayd from giving her a divorce, saying, Amsik alayka zawjak, because it occurred to him in that moment that if Zayd was to divorce him by his instruction and he gets married to Zainab, the Arabs would start to malign him and attack him for something that they considered taboo. When the reality is Allah is the one who reveals what is halal and what is haram. Allah is the lawgiver, not customs of jahili people. So he didn't want them to say that oh, Muhammad has married the wife of his, the ex-wife of his son. So to really get a proper understanding of how the mentality might have been, Consider cousin marriage, right? We know in Islam it is permissible, uh, with some caveats, it's permissible for someone to marry their cousin, male or female. In this society, however, how was that looked at? It's a major taboo. It's a major taboo. And I can tell you, taboos have force. They have force. None of my cousins, to the best of my knowledge, are Muslim. And even if they were, it's not that marriage would never cross my mind, even if it was Islamically permissible, right? Simply because in this culture that I grew up in, it's such a taboo. It's not even avoiding the blame of people. It's just something that it's, it doesn't even register, right? Islamically, I affirm that this is permissible. And Islamically, I know that the gender interactions between cousins uh, are stricter than the gender interactions with uh, maharim, right? They are not mahram, right? So you can't just be in khalwa with them. So consider how cousin marriages are perceived here. So we say they are allowed in Islam in the same way that marrying the ex-wife of your adopted son is allowed in Islam. But those taboos have cultural force. And the Prophet وسلم, uh, does not want to be maligned over this, right? 
So he didn't want them to perceive that he's telling him to divorce Zainab so he can then marry her. But he divorces him, her, and then he gets married because that is the command of Allah Ta'ala to him through the wahi. So the Arabs considered this uh, taboo. They considered the adopted son or the ex like their own in inheritance and in marital relations and things like that. Allah Ta'ala willed to correct this jahili understanding by having the Prophet Sallallahu marry Zainab, the ex-wife of his adopted son, so that people will know there's no basis to the jahili custom because Allah has legislated its permissibility. If, that verse, if a verse was revealed allowing it and he didn't do it, who do you think will be the first one to do that? Who's going to break the taboo? That takes a lot of bravery. So it's left to the bravest of the brave. And so he breaks the taboo. And he marries Sayyida Zainab bint Jahsh radiallahu anha. Now, this has been framed in different negative ways by Orientalists and preceding them by some of the Christian polemicists in the early Islamic history. But consider this. Why would the Prophet, if the Prophet just wanted to marry someone out of lust, why would he marry Zayd to Zainab in the first place? He could have just married her. Why would he have her get married, have the marriage consummated, have her divorced, have her go through idda, and then marry her? He has power and authority. He could marry her if he wanted to before that. Why didn't he? So, this is all a part of the sharia of Allah being conveyed to humanity through these events and the ayat of Qur'an revealed in connection with these events. So we go back to the Qur'an and we see more clarification. After Allah Ta'ala revealed the verses we just analyzed, He then reveals, مَا كَانَ عَلَى النَّبِيِّ مِنْ حَرَجٍ فِيمَا فَرَضَ اللَّهُ لَهُ سُنَّةَ اللَّهِ فِي الَّذِينَ خَلَوْ مِنْ قَبْلِ وَكَانَ أَمْرُ اللَّهِ قَدْرًا مَقْدُورًا This verse settles it. Allah Ta'ala says there's no haraj, no blame on the Prophet ﷺ for doing what Allah has ordained for him. Now pay attention. فِيمَا فَرَضَ اللَّهُ There's no blame on him for doing what Allah has commanded him to do. Allah Ta'ala does not say in this verse, Fima ahallahu, in what he has permitted him or made halal for him. He says, Fima faradallahu lahu, what Allah made fard for him, obligatory, compulsory. So he's fulfilling the divine command in getting married to Zainab. Then Allah Ta'ala continues, This has been the way of Allah with those prophets who had gone before. Sunnatullahi. And Allah's command has been firmly decreed. So this is the sunnah of those prophets who have gone before. What is that sunnah? Conveying sharia. Conveying the laws, ethics, and guidance revealed to them by Allah. This is the way of the prophets. This is the obligation upon them. Conveying the message. This was not some option. We see Allah Ta'ala says very clearly, what Allah made obligatory upon him. So as we said, 
this is one of the areas in the seerah that uh, the Orientalist and before them some of the Christians of the lands of Rom tried to use to malign the character of the Prophet وسلم, presenting him as as a lustful person just chasing after lust. So let us address this. Where does that come from? When we trace the history of the, that idea, we see it actually comes from uh, early Islamic history from the north, from some, yeah, some Christian understandings and Isra'iliyat that made their way into some of the tafasir that Orientalists would later try to exploit. So we have, for instance, uh, a, narr- a supposed narration uh, reportedly from Ikrimah in which it is said, أَنَّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ دَخَلَ يَوْمًا بَيْتَ زَيْدِ فَرَآهَا وَهِيَ بِنْتُ عَمَّتِهِ فَكَأَنَّهَا وَقَعَتْ فِي نَفْسِي This is the narration reportedly from Ikrima, and this is transmitted by Abd ibn Humayd and Ibn al-Mundhir in their tafsirs. The issue is, Abd ibn Humayd died in the year 249 after Hijrah, and Ibn al-Mundhir died in 319 after Hijrah. And there is inqita', there is a, a, a large disconnect between Ikrima and other people in the chain. Moreover, Ikrima obviously wasn't there because he's a tabi'i and he's relating this. So even if it's a sound narration, and it's not, but even if it is, at best it is mursal. It's just from a tabi'i reporting from a or a sahabi and there's no direct mention of being in the presence of the Prophet So it's not a sound narration to begin with but it's there in some of the books of tafsir. It's there. Content-wise, when you analyze it, you see it doesn't make any sense. And that's because it gives the impression that the Prophet was awestruck uh, by seeing Zainab radiallahu anha and she attracted his admiration. And when you read the narration, you see clearly that these are not from the words of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's a third party, unidentified third party, saying, فَكَأَنَّهَا وَقَعَتْ فِي نَفْسِي It's as if he was mesmerized by her. Who's saying that? And how do they know? The mesmerize, that's a state of the heart. How do you know the state of someone's heart? It's pure speculation. If you look at someone and I watch you observe that person, how can I say you are now mesmerized unless there's some other statement or behavior to indicate that? And what if I didn't see you look at that person, but I was told that you looked at that person? How can I guess your feelings? I can't. So that narration, besides being weak, it's a kind of guesswork about the feelings of the Prophet ﷺ towards her. And again, it doesn't make any sense because he married Zayd to her beforehand. He's already seen her. He's already interacted with her. This is not the first time he's seeing her and all of a sudden there's this lustful attraction with Iyadu Billah. He already knows what she looks like, right? Another narration comes through uh, Muqatil ibn Sulayman. Uh, and Muqatil ibn Sulayman is, uh, you know, his narrations are relied upon and used 
but with some grains of salt. Uh, he's relied upon in tafsir and siyar, but in hadith narration is not really. It's considered matruq, uh, abandoned. There's a narration that goes through him, which says, it describes the Prophet ﷺ developing an attraction to her beauty. But Muqatil's narration has zero sanad, no sanad at all, no chain of narration. He's also not the most reliable. You have to corroborate his reports, right? You, you have to be careful with those narrations. It's also against the sound reports. And as we said, we know that he's already seen Zainab many times before, and he married Zayd off to her, so he already knows what she looks like. So these narrations, these are two out of about four or five major narrations. Most of them don't say this. Most of them don't indicate any kind of lustful attraction or gives these impressions. But these narrations do exist, and they were used by Orientalists and before them by some Christian polemicists in the early days of Islam, as Islam was spreading north in Sham during the reign of Banu Umayyah. And some of these Isra'iliyat, these Christian and Jewish narratives that made their way into the tafsir, try to draw a parallel between this and Dawood's apparent attraction to Bathsheba. So it's messy. The whole thing is messy and nothing is relied upon in this area. These were picked up in Sham and one of the main polemicists using this was actually a Christian. His name was Yuhanna. He was a secretary. Uh, he was responsible for writing all sorts of reports in Greek during the reign of Hisham ibn Abd al-Madik uh, of Banu Umayyah. So this is very early on. And these are rejected narrations. And they contradict the sound narrations. They contradict the Quranic account and the wisdom behind the marriage between him وسلم, and Sayyidah Zainab bin Jahsh So I wanted to address that a little bit. Uh, there are uh, more detailed researches that have been written in English and in Arabic and other languages uh, addressing this argument in great detail. And you can find them online even. And it's more than adequately been responded to by scholars and researchers. But we wanted to put that out there since a part of the seerah, part of the objective here is also to address some of these shubuhat and strange understandings that sometimes arise when people read the seerah. Uh, and with that, Allahu wa Rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. I see those eyes. Right. Right. That comes. Yes. So there's a whole progression of changes to the laws concerning adopted children. That came all beforehand. All beforehand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But isn't it, isn't it instructing women to say men for bona dina over Hulupahu? So I know she has that option and then obviously I can't say anything, but it wasn't like that I am them. Fine, but guarding what's the special about how sudden for example Allah was simplified. I mean,
Yeah. She was the longest living wife and the longest, right? The long, the right? So that was interpreted uh, literally, but by the wives, but it's talking about lifespan. Yeah. Right. Some yeah. Some scholars, when they they talk about uh, the preservation and the integrity of the Quran, they say that if it was uh, man-made, why would the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, according to their claim, pin a verse that offers this itab and direction in something concerning his family affairs and matters of marriage from Allah? Yeah. Well, that that's a different that that's a different set of it's a different issue because there's a discussion about who is referred to. Was it even the Prophet There's a difference of opinion about that. Yeah, we'll talk about that. But that's Meccan period, so we've we've long sailed past that. If it was, but the question is, is it an itab towards him or is it an itab towards Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum? Because, yeah, that's a good question. Maybe we should explore that, although it's a little late. <laughs> uh, it, we did discuss it, I think, in one of the Aqidah classes in some detail. Uh, so maybe we'll save that for another time. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a, there's a number of uh, different opinions about who was the person who abasa, right, and was and whether it is an itab or not, and yeah, we'll get we'll talk about that inshallah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think the question is, it's a good one. I should, I should research it because Duma is in present-day Syria. Is, the, is this the name of the town that has the same name? And is that the same exact location as the incident? I don't know, right? If it is, it will be further than Tabuk. If Duma is a, another area in that region, then it's possible that Tabuk is further. I, I don't know. I should look into it. Right, well, it's because of the time of the year, yeah. Yeah. Right, so the narrations mention that it was a marriage uh, uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly without intermediary, right? And that became one of the points of pride for Sayyidah Zainab. Yeah. 
Sibara. The Hifaris were known to be powerful scholars. So it's almost to the genius idea just in case they missed him. Yeah. He had an ambassador that understood that. Right. And knew how to deal with it. There's definitely an ishara, an indication to be found in the different people who were appointed over Medina as he will go on these expeditions. Because sometimes you, or in many many cases, you find that it's like Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum. He's not a warrior, right? Although there, is, there are narrations, he did go into battle. But he's blind. And he went into battle simply because he didn't want to be included in the verse. Uh, I want to escape that blame, so just put me on the horse. And although I can't fight, I at least increase the numbers. But he's not a warrior, right? So he's appointed as Imam leading in Medina in the Prophet's absence, right? But during Tabuk, who was appointed? It was Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu. He was appointed in charge. Ali wanted to go into battle. He's the, he's the bravest warrior. He wants to go into battle. And the Prophet wasallam says, Are you not pleased, Ya Ali, that you are unto me as Harun was unto Musa? Right? Why did he put Ali there? It's because Tabuk was a very sensitive time. And he wanted someone there in that sensitive time in case anybody from the south comes up and tries anything. If someone does, there's a formidable warrior who can deal with the issue and also deal with the dissenters among the munafiqeen that were there. So you need someone like that. Whereas in other battles where there's less of a threat, Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum is fine because there's no threat. So there's an indication when you see who he's picking at different battles, what is also going on and the considerations he's making for looking after Medina in his absence. It's interesting, sometimes you come to these realizations and you wonder, has anyone ever noted that? Or am I the first one? And you look and look and look and you, sometimes you doubt yourself, well, maybe, maybe it's not that obvious, maybe it's not really that, there's nothing there really. And then maybe after years, as you continue to study and read, you find some alim says, oh, it's an interesting coincidence. And you feel so happy because you say, but I'm not alone. I wasn't the only one. It wasn't just my hair-brained idea. Someone else, some Adam also noted this. So, yeah. 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 Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen.